Hey there, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. But before we jump into that, I just wanted to let you know that uh, the new listener's commentary website is up and rolling. It took a lot longer to get it done than what we thought it would take. Apparently, what I'm trying to build is kind of complicated. And so it is there. Uh, and it's going to keep growing and developing. We'll keep adding more and more supplemental Bible study content to go along with the audio so that you can study the Bible for yourself. Included in the Study Hub is all my online courses, the two mini courses that I have, the four core courses. It's about 13 plus hours of video content. I have plans to add at least two more courses in the next year or two, Lord willing. And so there's just a lot of material that's already available there, and there's going to be a continual stream of new material added as we uh, decide to put pictures and charts and maps and new courses and other things on that site. And so that's available at listenerscommentary.com if you want to check it out. It's available on a give-what-you-can-afford sort of basis. You type in your information, create a login and a password, pick uh, an amount that uh, is reasonable to you and that you can afford, and then you have access to all that stuff on the website. And so just wanted to let you know that that is now available. All right, in this recording, as I noted, we are going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. The previous section served as the culmination to all of the explanation in the book of Hebrews about Jesus' person and work. Let me just kind of summarize the flow of that explanation, the argument, so we know really what he has argued, because everything that follows beginning in this section is built off of that. So the author of Hebrews began in chapter one by demonstrating that Jesus is the son of God. And as such, he's superior to all other spiritual beings, including the angels who actually participated in the giving of the old covenant law. Then he explained that the son had to become human in order to take care of human sin and death. And that's why he looked so lowly for a time. And as a human, he became a high priest, not a high priest of the old order, but a high priest of the new order, according to Melchizedek. And as high priest, he's the mediator of the promised new covenant that's built on better promises. Well, how did the Son, Jesus, the Messiah, accomplish this? Well, he did it by offering himself and his own blood and bringing that blood into the true heavenly tabernacle, which is a mirror or which is a copy of the, the earthly one, to provide complete cleansing for sin. One sacrifice for all people for all time. And so now... The new covenant is ratified and put into effect. The old covenant is old and feeble and about to disappear, he says. And sin has thus been dealt with fully and finally in and through our high priest Jesus, the Son of God, and his sacrifice of himself. That, in essence, is what the author of Hebrews has laid out in this magnificent book from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. Now, in the section that lies before us, he transitions to how they, the original readers, and really how we as readers today need to respond to all of this. Since all of this about Jesus is true, what should we do? So beginning here in chapter 10, verse 19, 
through the end of the book, what you get is a series of exhortations or calls to action. And those calls to action are based on the truth about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And so the present section, Hebrews 10, 19 through 39, is the first of those final culminating calls to action. And it's made up of two parts. The first part is verses 19 through 25. And the second part is verses 26 through 39. 19 through 29 focuses on how do we respond to the work of Jesus, the high priest. And it includes three specific calls to action. So that's 19 through 25. The second part is verses 26 through 39. And what it does is it actually issues a a strong warning about why responding that way is so important. All right, so let's look at the first section, verses 19 through 25, and how the author expects us and his original readers to respond to what he's shown about Jesus. Verses 19 through 25 revolve around three commands. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. Those are actual commands in uh, the original language that Uh, call the readers to action. And these three commands are firmly rooted in verses 19 through 25 in the work of Christ. He says, since we have confidence or having confidence by the blood of Christ and having a great high priest, and that's the basis for those three commands. So he begins in the first couple verses with that basis, those having confidence, having a great high priest, and then he gives three calls to action. Here's the way it unfolds, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, this is basis number one for the calls to action that he's going to give here shortly. And what he says is, we have confidence to enter the holy place. And the idea of confidence is parousia in Greek. It means freedom of speech, freedom of behavior. It's the picture of actually being able to enter into the presence of somebody or to frankly and freely speak your mind and your thoughts to somebody. Um, This word is actually used in, in several places in the New Testament to describe those in Christ's relationship with God, that they have this kind of freedom to enter into his presence, this freedom to be frank and be honest with him. And this has been a major emphasis in the book of Hebrews concerning those worshipers who have been perfected, that has been made completely clean. A worshiper who has experienced complete cleansing is free to enter into God's presence, has free welcome there. They can draw near openly and freely and confidently into the presence of God. And that's the point here with this first basis. Since we have this kind of confidence, this freedom to enter openly and confidently and freely into uh, the holy place, and the holy place in chapter 9 Um, was used for the Holy of Holies, which is beyond the veil, chapter 9, verse 20. That is into God's very presence, his throne room. And we have this confidence by the blood of Jesus. This is just a a phrase that summarizes everything he said in chapters 9 and the first half of chapter 10, that we now have this kind of access to God. Now, verse 20 goes on 
to amplify the way we come into God's presence, and it does so by combining tabernacle imagery with the sacrifice of Jesus. So verse 20 says that we can enter by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is through his flesh. Our way into the very presence of God, the very throne room of God is new. That is, it's not the old tabernacle way. It's a new way that was previously unavailable until Messiah came. And so we enter in by a new way, and it's also a living way. That is, it's a way made possible by Jesus's never-ending life. He talked about that. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek in that he he rose from the dead and he lives forever to make intercession for his people. So he's alive and his way gives life. So it's a new and living way and we enter in through the veil. Uh, remember, the veil uh, is part of that tabernacle imagery and it's referring to the veil between the first room of the tabernacle and the second room of the tabernacle, the veil between the outer room, the inner room, and the inner room represents the very presence of God. And so the way has been opened up through the veil, which he says is actually through the flesh of Jesus. That is through Jesus' sacrificial death. Now the way into God's very presence is open. So that's how we, that's how we enter into God's presence, and we do so with confidence. That's the first basis for the calls to action he's about to give. The second basis shows up in verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, it restates what he has said in the last handful of chapters, really beginning in chapter three about Jesus as the son of God and thus high priest over the household of God. And so based on that, based on the fact that we, we have this new way to enter and we can do so with confidence, and based on the fact that we have this great high priest over the house of God, then he begins to give those three calls to action. And the first one shows up in verse 22 as, let us approach God with a sincere heart. Let us approach or let us draw near. And that's the idea of approach. This word approach was actually regularly used in the Old Testament for the activity of the priest, drawing near to God through their activity in in worship, and sometimes it was used for the entire congregation of worshipers in the Old Testament for uh, drawing near to God. That's the idea. Let us approach or draw near to God. And so even though the word God does not literally and actually show up in the text, it's added here in this translation because that's the force of the word approach. Let us not just approach anywhere, but let us draw near to God, approach God and do so in two ways or two manners in which we draw near. The first is with a sincere heart. That is no guile, no deceit, no hypocrisy. We come near to God sincerely, genuinely, authentic, uh, authentically, not with divided allegiance. That was sort of the issue with the, the original readers. Their allegiance, they were being tempted to have divided allegiance. I, I kind of want to worship the old way, not just the new way. Well, we need to come near to God uh, sincerely, without deceit, without guile. The second manner in which we draw near is in full assurance of faith, he says there in verse 22. Um, that is, full conviction of trust, a firm and unwavering trust, one commentator says. Uh, it's being loyal to him through and through. 
And he's actually going to expand on that in chapter 11, which if you're familiar with Hebrews is the well-known faith chapter in the book of Hebrews, this idea of trusting God fully and completely. And so we draw near that way in sincere heart with full assurance of, of faith and the means by which we draw near, he states in the second half of verse 22, what's the means? Well, uh, we draw near because we have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And, and so that's the idea of having our hearts sprinkled. It's really giving the reason or the means by which we draw near. And this is a reference. Notice it's our hearts. So it's a reference to inward spiritual cleansing from sin. But it's a, a picture of it using the illustration from the Old Testament rituals where they would sprinkle blood on people to, uh, to symbolize their cleansing before God so that they could draw near. And so it's using that imagery of that sprinkling blood from the Old Testament rituals to say, well, in Christ, it's not just a symbol. We really do have our hearts clean from an evil conscience. So that's the first means. The second means here in verse 22 is, and we have our bodies washed with pure water. And so that's giving the other reason. It's not clear exactly what he means, but it's possible this is an allusion to Christian baptism. Not 100% clear, but since Christian baptism was in the New Testament era, was an immediate action of faith when someone became a follower of Jesus. When someone came to faith in Jesus, read the book of Acts, they, they were baptized almost always immediately, like on the same day. And so it became associated with becoming a believer, becoming a follower of Jesus. And, and so you'll see the New Testament writers frequently use baptism in connection with all the things that are part of conversion because it happened so immediately in time, it was viewed as it embodied a person's uh, belief in Jesus. And so this here, when it talks about our bodies being washed with pure water, is probably an allusion to Christian baptism, although it's not 100% clear. The point of these two phrases, heart sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water, together these two phrases refer to inner and outer cleansing. Jesus has provided complete and full cleansing from sin, and so we're clean. And that means we can come before God freely and confidently. So let's do so. Let's draw near. That's the first call to action. Uh, verse 23 then gives the next call to action. It says this, and let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. This actually restates an idea from chapter 4, verse 14, to hold firmly to our confession. And that idea of hold firmly, kat echo, means to hold tightly onto, to keep a tight grasp on. Um, and he says to do this without wavering. That is, um, without shaking, without vacillating. In fact, the word without wavering was used in the ancient world for like a lasting friendship or it was sometimes actually, it was used of like standing by a, a perspective, an understanding of something. Like this is the idea of being reliable and dependable. So hold tightly, keep a tight grasp on the confession of our hope and do so in a lasting sort of way without wavering, without vacillating, standing by it. No, nope, I'm going to be faithful to the end. This is a call to perseverance and faithfulness to being true and faithful all the way to the end. And we, we can do this, he says, 
because he who promised is faithful. That's our assurance. God won't let us down. He's trustworthy. He's dependable. He's faithful. He'll fulfill his promises. And so our faithfulness is possible because God's faithfulness is guaranteed. And so let us hold firmly, hold tightly to our confession of hope. And then in verse 24 and 25, we get the third call to action. He says this, he says, let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds. And so let's consider, and that idea of consider is to give attention to, to think about, right? Like to focus on, like how can we do this? To think this through, to reflect on, give attention to this. So we want to consider and think about how to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Encourage is literally stir up uh, or motivate, stir to action is the idea. Like, let's think through and reflect on how can we help each other and, and stir each other up and spur each other on to action. And the action we want to spur each other on to is specifically love and good deeds. How can we, that's a summary of like Christian living. How can we help each other live out the, the love of Jesus and the good deeds of Jesus right where they live? The author encourages uh, his readers now to look past themselves and their own faithfulness and to begin to see their responsibility to help each other in the community of faith um, live this way and be faithful this way and to continue to grow in Christ and to live for Christ. And this is to be a conscious part of the Christian life. It's not accidental or haphazard. We're supposed to consider how to do it and give intentional thought to it. And one of the things this entails then, as he goes on to say in verse 25, is not abandoning our meeting together. Um, this word, not abandoning, actually is a participle that modifies let us consider. It tells us something that's involved in considering how to motivate and stir up each other to love and good deeds. And so it informs us, really, of one of the purposes of of Christian gathering, of being a part of a community of faith. Um, one of the purposes of it is ongoing motivation and stirring each other up to Christian living. And so he says, don't abandon that. You got to continue to be part of the community of faith. Um, and some are already beginning to withdraw from it. He says, as is the habit of some people, like they're already beginning to uh, kind of withdraw from meeting together, maybe because of threat of persecution, maybe because of hostility of some sort, maybe just because of general apathy or inconvenience. And he's like, no, 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 we need to be together. We need to meet together. We need to stir each other up. And so he says, so encourage one another uh, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, the day they're uh, refers to the final day, the day of Jesus' return and the day of judgment. And every day we wake up, we're closer to that day. And so in view of that, he says, don't give this up, but keep meeting together and keep stirring each other up and keep encouraging one another. Now, why is this so important? Why do they, why do we need to respond this way to what the author of Hebrews has taught us about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished? Well, that's the topic of the second part of this section in verses 26 through 39. Um, those verses give the reason for drawing near to God and for persevering in our confession and for stirring one another up. And it does that 
by giving a very serious warning. And so what's the reason? Why should we respond to Jesus and his high priesthood this way? Well, the reason is because if you reject Jesus, there's no other sacrifice for sin. Since he's the final, ultimate, culminating, perfect sacrifice for sin, if you reject Jesus, then you have nothing left. Look what he says in verse 26. He says, for, explaining, he's given the reason, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And it's important to notice that he says, go on sinning willfully. That actually uh, reflects the Old Testament understanding, the Jewish understanding of, of sin, Numbers 15, 22 through 31, where it talked about uh, willful, rebellious sins, what sometimes uh, older commentators would call sins of the high hand, right? Um, that th these were where you just completely disregard and go against God's covenant there in Numbers 15. Well, in the original uh, context of Hebrews, what's the willful sin that the recipients of this letter were inclined towards? Well, it's not terrible immorality. It's a return to the old covenant. It's a return to leaving the Messiah behind and going back to the old covenant, which is old and feeble and disappearing, as he said in chapter 8. But such a return to the old covenant is actually to be disobedient to the Messiah and to the gospel. And that's a serious sin. And so that's what he's talking about. That is, that is rebellion against the covenant that God has made now in and through the Messiah. But even though that's the main temptation of the original readers, the way the author has stated this here makes it clear that any such high-handed rebellion against God and his covenant is included in this warning. That's what he means. So if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, like anything that would take us away from the gospel, from the knowledge of the truth, and be considered willful rebellion against the covenant God has made in the Messiah, well, you have no other sacrifice for sins. Like, since Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice, you have nothing else to deal with sins. And so you're left in your sins if you reject the one sacrifice of Christ. Not only that, he says um, in verse 27, the other thing you can expect is judgment. Look at verse 27. He says, not only do you not have a sacrifice for sins, but, verse 27, what remains is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Again, using language from the Old Testament that would have been powerful and familiar to his audience of Jews, the author is warning them that if you reject the Messiah and the new covenant, this is what you have to look forward to. The language here in this verse alludes to Isaiah 26, 11. And in the context in Isaiah, there's a contrast between those who walk in God's ways and those who continue to do evil in spite of God's blessing and grace to them. That's what he's getting at. Um, this fury of fire that will consume the adversaries is those who continue to do evil, reject God's plans, reject God's purposes for them, and really just spite God, even though God has been gracious to them. Then the author provides, uh, in what follows, a lesser to greater argument to show how serious this really is. And he does that by saying, look, here's what happened if you ignored the covenant made through Moses. Well, what do you think about covenants made through Messiah? And so he says in verse 28, anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death 
without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, this is what happened to somebody who violated and was unfaithful to the Old Covenant. The passage that most directly lies behind what the author of Hebrews says here is Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. And in that passage there in Deuteronomy, it makes it clear that the person has turned away from God's covenant and worshiped other gods. It's completely rejecting the covenant. It's changing teams and being disloyal to God himself through breaking his covenant. And so the result is, it's not just like a one-off sin. This is somebody who's like disregarded God and his covenant said, no way, and changes teams by worshiping other gods. And the result is death for that. Um, that was the case with the old covenant. Well, what about the new? Look at verse 29. He says, how much more, lesser to greater. If that was the case under the old covenant, which the author of Hebrews has already showed was not nearly as, as powerful and glorious as the new covenant, it had glory and it was effective in its time, but it's passe and old and certainly didn't have the power and the glory of the new covenant. Well, if that's what happened when you rejected that covenant, how much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has despised God's very own Son, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Notice what we're talking about. Same sort of uh, imagery and language as Deuteronomy 17. Not just an occasional sin or even struggle with a sin, but it's changing teams. It's disregarding the covenant and going against the covenant. If in the case of the lesser covenant, someone who spurned it was put to death, well, how much worse will it be if somebody who spurns the, the new covenant and tramples underfoot, look at that strong language, trample underfoot the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, if you do that, uh, and you've insulted, he even says, the spirit of grace. Like if you've gone against that, you've trampled on the foot of the Son of God, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant, and insulted the spirit of grace, then what do you think you can look forward to with that? Then he drives home the seriousness of this uh, with a warning that comes from Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 through 36. It's about God and his judgment. And it really just describes something about the nature and character of God, that God does hold people accountable when, uh, to their behavior and to their faithfulness. And so verse 30 says, For we know him, that is God, we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is, this is the true God. This is the God that was talked about under the old covenant. God's character doesn't change. This is the same God today. And so the person uh, who spurns God's covenant, now in effect through the Messiah, Jesus, well, this is what he can expect. This is why there's a terrifying expectation of judgment, because God is somebody who holds his people accountable, and he does repay evil, and he does judge his own people. And so it's thus a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, which, which pictures the idea of you're rebelling against God. This is what you have to look forward to. But then, just as he did with the strong warning that we saw in chapter 6, the author of Hebrews backs off and reminds the readers of their past faithfulness and their past service and encourages them to persevere in faithfulness going forward. So he issues the strong warning and then he backs off and says, but, 
but I think we can expect better things for you. And here's the way he says it here. But verse 32, remember the former days when after being enlightened, that is your conversion, being enlightened is a way to refer to their conversion. When you came to faith in Jesus and the lights came on and you realized who he was, after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings. And so when you first became believers and there was persecution and opposition and difficulty for you, remember those days? Then in verse 33, he describes actually some of the specific kinds of suffering they endured, partly by being made a public spectacle through insults and distress. So you were ridiculed, made fun of, you were shamed publicly, and partly by becoming companions with those who were mistreated. So even if you weren't mistreated, you aligned yourself with people who were, and you were part of their family, and you helped them out, and you shared in their life, and you took care of them and, and made sure they were provided for, even though they were suffering that way. What are some of the things they did in those early days when they first became believers? Well, look at verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. And so, so here's some of the things they, they did and they endured. They became companions who the, with those who were suffering. They even showed sympathy to prisoners. Not only that, they themselves had some difficulty. They, they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. So in some sense, People were taking their homes, looting their businesses. Who knows what it was, but they were experiencing some sort of seizure of their property. And they did so, the author says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. You were willing to lose your property because you knew you had eternal property that was promised to you. That's the idea of lasting possession. In fact, he'll reference this idea in various ways in chapter 11, very shortly, he'll even describe it as a lasting city. Like you're you're moving towards a lasting city. And so, yes, to lose property now while painful, it's not completely devastating because there's eternal property and an eternal city to be had in the world to come. So this is who they've been. This is what they've done. And therefore, he, he now calls them in verse 35. So don't throw that away. So stern warning, but remember what you've, who you've been and what you've done and how you served and what you've endured. Don't throw that away. So verse 35 says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Like there is this lasting possession. There is this great reward. So don't just toss in the towel and throw that away for Verse 36, you have need of endurance. That's what you need. You need to persevere and stay faithful. The idea of endurance is to, to, to stay put under pressure. That's really the, the force of the word endurance is to stay put under pressure. So now you're feeling the pressure. You're thinking about just tossing in. You just need to stay put and hang in there under pressure because that has great reward. Um, so, so you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Again, keeping their eyes looking on the future. Like, in this world you have tribulation, Jesus said, but take heart, I have overcome this world. There's a new world coming. There's promises to be had. There's an eternal lasting city and lasting possessions to come. So stay put under pressure so that you may receive what was promised. For in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay and my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is actually a loose quote from the Septuagint version of Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4. 
And in its original context, Habakkuk had just been told that God was going to send Babylon as punishment on his people for their unfaithfulness to God. Habakkuk then protests to God like, hey, that's worse than Judah because Babylon are worse sinners than Judah. Judah's sinners are, right? So the cure is worse than the disease, God. This doesn't seem just or fair. And then God's response to Habakkuk is, hold on, trust me, wait patiently, and be faithful. Well, this then, the righteous will live by faith, actually becomes a theme verse in the New Testament. Uh, That is how God's righteous people actually go about their life, is by faith and faithfulness. So the faith that Habakkuk needed in his day is the same faith that's needed now, to wait patiently and to trust God until his promises have come to fulfillment, until Jesus returns, hope is realized, and we we enjoy the great reward that he's promised for us. And, And so just like Habakkuk needed to endure in faith in his day, so too do the readers of Hebrews then and now, including us, right, need to endure in our day. But the author ends, we are not among those who shrink back to destruction. That's not who we are as the people of the Messiah. We're not people who shrink back and say, no, I'm done. I'm going to just toss in the towel. This is over. We're not those kinds of people. We don't shrink back to destruction, but we're the people who have faith for the safekeeping of the soul. And so that's how we live. Uh, We live by faith. And that means we, we have faith for the safekeeping of the soul as an anchor for the soul, as a guard to the soul, the soul being a reference to our whole person, our whole life, that our soul is preserved and kept safe because of our trust in God himself. That's who we are as the Messiah's people. We are people who trust God in faith, clear to the end. So let us draw near. Uh, Let us hold tightly to our profession of faith and let us stir one another up to love and good deeds.